Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. What's up, folks? Welcome to the latest episode of Existential, and we have a guest back with us. You might remember, I think it was season one or two, we had uh, Amanda Hambrick Ashcraft on, who is the founder of Raising Imagination, a public theologian, uh, pastor, speaker, activist, um, recently um, contributor on Fox News, which is super interesting. This is what we're going to get into uh, here shortly. But Amanda, thanks for coming back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Glory. Yeah, like I am, um, so I, you know, of course, ever since, you know, way back when, when you were first on the podcast, just been like following your work and seeing what you're up to. It's like you're always outside <laughs> doing something in the world. Like what, what have you been up to recently? Like maybe that we don't know. Yeah. Well, let's see. Um, last Wednesday, I went down to D.C., um, to bear witness uh, as oral arguments were being heard at SCOTUS around the very likely overturning of Roe versus Wade. Um, so that was, yeah, not even a week ago. Um, and we can we can dive into that if you want. I'm just of running. Course. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I definitely want to. And um, just this morning, I was outside back again at the um, remains of the church where I work. Let's say the church building where I work. I'm an executive minister at Middle Church, and um, our sanctuary burned to the ground in a six-alarm fire uh, exactly a year ago, um, two days ago. So my office is usually outside protesting something in front of like a court building or a court office or um, around the rubble of some fire remains here in the East Village of New York. Wow. So, okay, so much there. And, you know, as I as I knew it would be, I definitely want to come back to the uh, Roe v. Wade thing because I know that's a, a, a huge passion area um, for you as it should be for all of us. Um, I... You just said something that that triggered me to think about how much you hear Christians and like, you know, especially evangelicals saying we need to be known more for what we're about than what we're against. And I I want to contrast that with your lived experience of being out in the world, protesting, lamenting, resisting mm-hmm. all of the things that... Um, can crush the vulnerable in the world. So mm-hmm. what 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 are you how do you hold that whole idea of we should be more about what we're for than what we're against? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great question and it's really important and I actually really fully agree with it cuz I think that's how mm-hmm. you build movements. I do think we do need to be known for what we stand for. Um Yeah. yeah. And I try to do that. I hope I do that in the, this work of resisting and kind of providing a counter um, argument in a lot of ways, a counter argument, mm-hmm. let me say, to um, white Christian hmm. um, 
theologies and and practicalities. Um, I try to do that by showing that I have a lot of fun too, hmm. and I have a lot of joy. And I hope that those two things are evident in the work that I do, which is often heavy and yeah. often um, very deep. If that's me, I'm going to try to figure out how to turn it off. Um, <laughs> very deeply um, sad and violent topics. Um, yeah. But, but for example, you know, I thought about a lot about this specifically with the um, abortion conversation because it's easy to say, well, I'm against the religious right who was co-opted pro-life to mean something that you and I really don't think is about life at all. Um, it's mm. actually about violence and control. Um, mm. But what is a different way to say that? Like, how do I talk about what I am for? Um, and I think it's important also to put into this conversation that I am for a God who understands mm. the intersectionality of the abortion conversation. That's mm. what I'm for. And so I am for people bringing the intersections of any moment into a conversation. What are the intersections that are in play um, with the abortion conversation? Of course, their race and their class and their gender. You know, those are the three that really um, come to mind there. And I'm also really about a God who wants people to make the best decisions that they can for their bodies um, because mm -hmm. We all are made with a divine image and a divine spark and the ability um, to do that. So I do think that that's really, really important um, to, to say and to be about as well. I thought I had a little sign here. I was going to show you. I know that nobody's going to see this, but there <laughs> is an organization called uh, We Testify who's doing okay. really, really great work around this the importance of language in the mm. abortion conversation specifically. Um a woman named Renee Sherman. I'm gonna I'm gonna confirm that for you. Um, her last name is one of the leaders of that. But they um, are the ones who started this phrase. Everybody loves someone who has had an abortion, which is really really wow. powerful and a way to 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 talk about um, what we are for in that. Um, they recently are. I'm gonna get it. I know where it is. Okay. They, All right. They do this. Um, this thing called, they're the ones behind this, Liberate Abortion. Wow. Which I think is just really also powerful. Like, let's, like, how is this, how is this, how is the, how can the abortion conversation be one about liberation as well? Yeah. Uh, because that's really genius. Um, so, yeah, that's just some initial thoughts and, like, how do I hold the resistance work that I do with this call that I think is right in movement building um, and in liberation work to uh, to be to kind of crystallize and talk about what is it that we are for? And I'll say one more thing, then I'll be quiet for a minute. <laughs> I do think that white people specifically do need to be talking about what we need to be resisting. Mm. We have allowed a lot of really shitty and crappy and violent theologies and um, systems to flourish. Mm. 
And yeah. we actually do need to name those and be honest about those before we can build correctly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, you know, interestingly enough, um, when I ever, whenever I have a conversation with a Christian who is, uh, who wrestles with, struggles with any person, I guess, who struggles with the, the idea of abortion um, and this whole, you know, innocent um, baby thing, right? Which, mm-hmm. um, interestingly enough, also, I, I've recently seen this uh, going around, this, this image of a black fetus, mm-hmm. and, and the caption was, I've never seen one until now. Because it is interesting to me how often when you see images of babies and when people are trying to give you this idea that we have to protect these babies, they're always white. Um, like I, I don't recall ever seeing one that was of an innocent black baby, um, which I guess is a conversation <laughs> for another day. But I am interested to, like, um, to hear you speak to our obligation as people of faith. And I won't say Christian, I'll say it's people of faith. I'll say people mm-hmm, of, of mm-hmm. some sort of moral code to uh, protect the most vulnerable in our society. Um, what is the, I, I'd hear people argue that the most vulnerable in our society are the unborn. Um, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> how, would, how would you, like, speak to that uh, part of this conversation? Yeah. Um, I don't think the most vulnerable people in our society are the unborn. Mm. Let me just say that first. Um, and I also think as it relates to the abortion conversation, that's the wrong place to start. Mm. That's the wrong leading question to begin with. And, uh, I was, as I said, I was at NDC last Wednesday and Corey, there were orchestrated busloads of like skinny 20 year old white boys from Liberty, <laughs> literally who just, I'm like, you look the same, y'all dress the same. You're walking in the same line. Like, oh my and, and they, you know, were walking around the whole day with like microphones and like interviewing people for what I don't know, but their mm. question that they kept putting in the face of everybody that was pro-abortion was when does life begin? Oh my God! That's 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 the that's the first that's a, they wanted to say so that then they could pin it, pigeonhole anybody who doesn't either know the answer to that question or says in the womb or at conception or whatever into this you know this kind of tit for tat conversation around well then you're a murderer mm-hmm. and I I like to respond to this conversation by saying that's not where we start this that's not the way that I think we should approach this conversation. Again, I think we should approach it by this, with this intersectional lens of seeing all the, all of the realities of how this conversation fits into the whole trajectory and decades long history um, and lived reality of um, the United States. And there's no way a, a person with a moral code, with a moral center can be on the side of the um, anti-abortion is how I like to say it now instead of pro-life because there's just mm-hmm. nothing pro-life about them. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's no way that someone with a moral code can be voting for or be on the side of anti-abortion people when you come to this conversation 
understanding that the people that are we're going to talk about who's vulnerable here, it is statistically black and poor people who will be hurt most by abortion bans. Full stop. That wow. is who is the most vulnerable in this conversation. Because exactly like you said, like why we don't see, you know, every sign that I saw, you know, very largely hmm. waving hmm. Um, hmm. anti-abortion in front of SCOTUS was a white fetus. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. to exactly, you know, prove your point, who are we really trying to protect here? It's actually not the unborn, it's whiteness. It's actually wow. not the unborn, it's the patriarchy. It's actually not the unborn, it's control. And it's actually an illusion, right, of all those things, you know, of all those things, too. Um, yeah, so, man. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, and not to mention the fact, you know, I, I always I chuckle at the notion when people want to ask, you know, when does life begin as if there is some clear cut, simple answer to it. Like if you if you actually um, look at the Torah, yeah, Moses and them really struggled to understand when life they didn't know. No, but like, and like it's like protect the mother. Yeah, it's yeah. So I mean, it's like it it is it is a um, it's fascinating to me how much uh, modern Western Christianity um, is. Some of these ideas are about fifty to a hundred years old, but people act like they go back to like antiquity. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, it's just whatever. Um, ingenious way the religious right thinks that they can organize or put a narrative forward that will catch on and allow their goals of maintaining control and power and whiteness to flourish. That's what they did. I mean, mm-hmm. you've, you've probably heard me say before that the whole pro-life in quotes again, movement started in the late, really, really flourished in the late 1970s when a bunch of white people were sitting around saying, how can we make sure that Carter doesn't get elected for a second term? And one of the reasons they didn't want him to get elected for a second term was because they were worried about schools becoming integrated. They wanted schools to continue to be segregated, but that is not, a real palatable thing to sell. This is where, you know, like I was talking on Fox, like these are racially coded ways that the right organizes and has been organizing for decades. And instead of coming on the TV and saying, hey, let's keep our schools segregated, even though they kind of do that now, don't they? (laughs) But at least in the 70s, they were like, no, that's not going to work. But what can work? Unborn babies. Because who doesn't love unborn babies? Who's not going to be able to rally around this notion of innocent, pure, white babies? And so that's what they said. They they very intentionally crafted this to be a wedge issue, this to be the issue that they are still winning off of. I mean, here we are in 2021, and they are still winning off of this manipulatively, intentionally crafted um, movement. Man. So, <laughs> so what what uh, what is it that that you would say um folks that want to contend for a better world which I think an argument um that you and I make is that a better world is one where um people are free and where women don't have their bodies um you know uh, 
what they can do with their bodies dictated by men. Yeah. Um, what is it that like people can do? Like, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, when, when it's election season, it's pretty easy. You know, you, you, you kind of encourage people to, you know, uh, go to the polls with, with their consciousness. Um, but when it's not an elect, when you're not going to a ballot box on issues like abortion and it's, and it's being discussed and they're trying to overturn it. Like, what is it that the average everyday person can do? Yeah. Well, you know, I go to sleep at night thinking about these, <laughs> these things too, Corey. So I definitely don't have all the answers um, here and I'm always learning too, but asking the questions. Yeah. Putting forth the dream and the mm. goal is mm. is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've I'm a big fan of this notion of liberatory consciousness. Are you familiar with that? No, oh, I will be in like two minutes after you explain. Yeah, it. yeah, Barbara <laughs> Love. Um, but basically, it's just this I this way this kind of framework of understanding our lives and our um, call. Um, in it, in, in our call, um, as being very clear about the oppressive systems that are at play and mm. being very clear about how, based on different privileges and access that one has, we are part of upholding, you know, oppressive mm. systems in ways. And at the same time, putting forth the dream, putting forth the mm. hope, putting forth um, the imagination for a better way forward. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one way that that one thing we can do is always kind of exist and move with this liberatory consciousness, with this prophetic imagination, you know, with, which is Walter Brueggemann. And yeah. y'all need to laugh with me because I don't know how to turn off my... my <laughs> no worries. You're just no gonna worries. But you know? <laughs> um, so I think that that's, that's one thing we can do. I think in... In, um, you know, white women specifically still have to do a lot uh, more listening and learning um, uh, to, you know, in this in this conversation also to black women, to trans people, um, to people who have actually had abortions. I haven't had an abortion uh, myself, but of course, those are the people who should be leading this conversation and showing us the ways to. We, we are always acting with the way that we spend our money um, and our mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. supporting abortion providers right now, um, specifically in states where access is really on the line, um, is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have a lot of family members too who, you know, I've I've held different kind of listening circles about this topic specifically over the past year and I've intentionally invited different aunts and people who I know like this is their wedge issue and um they'll they'll write back and and well I can't come but I really hope you're talking about adoption or you know like kind of putting in like a little jab about how to get around it. But I think at least just starting that conversation too with the people who are in your network, the people who are close to you and find out, you know, like where is the rub for them or, or what is the place that we can have the conversation? Because at some point it's going to come back up, right? So I didn't get to finish that conversation with that specific person then, but 
you know, just yesterday I posted something on my story about the atrocities, you know, all of the gun violence that's, that's always here, but here again. And that person wrote and was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sad about this. I didn't send my daughter to school because there's been so many threats. And so now guess what I have? Now there's a way that I'm going to be able to connect the gun violence in this country to the same people who are anti-abortion because that's statistically how they vote and that's statistically how they go to church. Right. And so we've kind of now been able to see, well, we have a starting point of empathy. We have a place where we can say, Oh, wow, I'm really sad about my kid because they can't go to school because of the gun violence in this country. And now there's a, a, a an opening for a conversation yeah, and and let let's let's talk about how actually that's also connected to the anti-abortion movement in this country, and let's 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 dissect that a little bit. Yeah, man. Wow, wow. So I mean, there, I, I, there's so much to discuss here, and, and I and I, I think we I think I kind of want to lean into it because um, some of this for me is is it feels very much like new ground. Mm. Um, to hear, to hear for me to resonate with the idea of supporting financially institutions that perform abortions is like so radically different from the Corey of even four or five years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we talk? Can we? Can you kind of? And I want you to lead it. Like, the, uh, can we talk about um, why it is that it's important, um, morally speaking, for? Um, women to have the right, which, God, I mean, and, and a, a part of me even feels like, part of me even feels like, like, like as a, as, as a black male, there is a bit of violence in having to like justify my existence, right? It's when, when I'm, when I'm helping white folks understand um, privilege or implicit bias, any of those things, it's like, dude, uh, I'm a human being who's like on the, receiving end of all of this violence and i'm also the person now has to help you with it right um so if if this is that too much of that for you i, I truly get oh, it. Gosh, no okay yeah. okay so and, I, yeah, that's very generous of you Corey, but no, <laughs> okay. i don't think those two things are comparable no. okay because i because i do know that like when you're talking about women like and and, and like almost asking the question, why should women have the right to do what they want with their bodies is the most ridiculous question you freaking ask <laughs> But like, so I'm trying to find my way into find my way into this in a way that like, if maybe there's somebody listening to this who's like really r- struggling, and I'm being and I want to be sensitive yeah. to that person. Yeah, yeah. Like, what what's the moral ground for it? Yeah. And I'm hesitating too because it's like, yeah, where do you start? Um, the moral ground for it is a fundamental belief that God wants all people to flourish Mm -hmm. and that God wants and believes that all people are worthy just because of who they are, not just because of who they are, because of exactly who they are Mm -hmm. to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I just, I can't believe that, that God would create. I don't believe that God created anyone less than, anyone not able to, 
anyone that that needs you know some something else to be the fullness of who they are mm-hmm. now that does not mean that does not when i say that uh, i don't mean that to in any way lessen our call to community i don't mm-hmm. think uh, that's not what i'm saying here because our call you know we all actually become um even more full and rich when we are in community mm-hmm. but but god designs all of us with that divine image and so to say that a woman let's just let's just do that because that's that's what you did to say that a woman can't make a decision about their body is saying that god can't make a decision about god now how does that sit with you listeners and to, and to think, oh, I've never thought about it that way before, says a lot actually about who then you think God is, mm. which would be male. Because mm-hmm. if you haven't really made that connection before, then that's okay. But like, let's just name and claim that maybe we need to deconstruct a little bit our mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. of who God is. Dude. Like the I, I mean, <laughs> wow. Okay, so yeah, I've spent the last year or so deconstructing the idea of God as a man with a penis. No worries about the alarm. No one cares. No, one, well, if they do care, who cares? <laughs> um, the um, the the image of God as a woman, the feminine, female, the imagery that we've lost through the the editing and change and altering mm-hmm. and of uh, scripture uh, over thousands of years. Um, I wonder if we all had kept that and if we were introduced to the the feminine God who hovers in Genesis, mm-hmm. if we like, if our ideas about, as you mentioned, our ideas about a woman's body would be different. Would what we do you look think? at it differently? Yeah. Like, would would we feel odd that that it's mostly men who make these decisions about what women can do with their bodies. Would we, because would then we we'd feel? be putting men above, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I feel, I was telling somebody earlier, I'm like, uh, um, kind of along the same lines, like, would we think differently about God? In fact, would there even be white evangelicalism if the images of all of the, the um, uh, fathers of the faith were the brown and black people that they actually were in history. Right. If right. St. Augustine was black and right. all these images of St. Augustine that you'd seen throughout the, throughout the history had been images of a black man, would there even be white evangelicalism? Because would they follow, <laughs> would they follow a faith that was passed down to them by Africans? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, It, that's a great question. Or would it be what, you know, we have seen happen, which is somebody knew that there was at least somebody sitting around the table who knew that these were brown people who changed it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know I what mean, I'm saying? Yeah. And I think that's so, this is where I think the imagery, when you talk about, you know, this, this issue, we talk about the abortion issue. I think the imagery is so important because someone, like you said, somebody knows how to 
rally people for their cause and they know that the images that rally people for their cause are are white they know they're innocent yeah. white babies they know that they're you know white men with with beards who we feel we can trust them to tell us what to do and yeah that's a that's a fascinating aspect that you brought up and really and something act- i hope people will sit with yeah and actually um a doctor friend of mine, um, Ronnie Varghi, sent me an article about a year ago, and I just pulled it up, and it's titled, Who People Believe Rules in Heaven Influences Their Beliefs About Who Rules on Earth. Come on, This man. is a study that Stanford uh, psychologist Stephen Roberts, and he found that the characteristics that U.S. Christians assign to God moreover, male or female, black, white, old, or young, are the same identities they attribute to a boss. And so this is just exactly what we're talking about. Like, who we imagine is ruling in heaven totally impacts who we imagine rules or doesn't rule here on earth. And it affects our freaking politics. Yep. Like, it absolutely affects our worldview, um, which then affects our footprint in the world, the, the things that we feel we, we are passionate about, the things that we say, things we don't say, things we will uh, resist, things we won't resist. I mean, it's just like, it, I love that we're here at this place of imagination because this is, you know, this is your, this is your website. Like yeah, yeah. We, have, we have to begin to imagine differently. Yeah. Um, and, and I think both of our work um, is, in that lane of trying to yep. help people have a new imagination. Now, speaking of the new imagination, I never imagined that I would uh, go to Instagram and see you on a panel on Fox News. And and like, yeah. uh, because, because, now here's why. It's not that like, I didn't think, you know, you would interact with, with, with you know, conservative people because I, I think all of, we all interact with conservative people. And I don't think conservative people are without moral value or dumb or any of those things. It's that, Fox News in particular, for me, anytime I've seen anyone with a dissenting opinion, they've always cast that person as someone inept, and you are not that. And the sound bites that I've seen from you are like, do they act? They actually aired this? Yeah, <laughs> and three times they've. I've, yeah. I don't know. I think I'm done now, but three times they had me back. Yeah. How, now, how did this come about? How did you wind up there? Yeah. Like, how, what what happened? Um, so a friend of mine, um, she wrote a book called Raising Our Hands, How White Women Avoid Hard Conversations, and it's a longer title than that, but um, Mm. she is a Biden surrogate and has been positioned for a while on Fox as that, like a Biden surrogate, and so I guess a little over a year ago, they were like, okay, Jenna, can you recommend some other people, um, for like some voter conversations essentially. And so she, I guess, lifted up a bunch of people. And so they, they called me, um, the hosts of the shows called me and and we talked, you know, I think I talked an hour one time with Harris Faulkner. She's the host of the show that I go on. Black woman, interestingly, had her children baptized at Riverside Church here in New York City. We got, we found that out, you know, together through one of our first conversations. Obviously we differ 100% on politics and how we see um, our role as mothers, as um, civically minded, civically engaged people, um, mm-hmm. as public voices. Um, but 
I also said yes to going on her show specifically because I do get a sense that she's wanting to set a table for conversation. Interesting. Um, obviously, the the questions like that I get pitched and and whatever are are already um, very you know tilted one way. Um, mm-hmm. But. Anyway, so I think my friend Jenna, I was on a list that my friend Jenna gave. So, um, you know, through conversations and they and they research, right? They know who they want to put on there. And obviously Mm -hmm. I look like and am characteristically very similar to much of their base. Mm -hmm. Um, But I bring a very counterintuitive perspective. Like I am the the progressive. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I think you'll appreciate this, Corey. On election night, um, I knew that I didn't want to go on there and immediately be able to be completely dismissed by everybody watching, by mm-hmm. every Fox viewer watching, because mm-hmm. then really what am I doing, right? If I'm if right. I'm really not there at all to help somebody watching sit, who's sitting at home, think about their faith in a different way, think about their role as a mother in a different way, then what am I doing? So yeah. I knew that I couldn't go on there and just be discounted as the socialist, you know, Northern mm-hmm. bitch, like that could be that. <laughs> and so I knew I did have to play this like fairly uncomfortable, like let's talk, like let's let's be mm-hmm. civil and like do that. Um, and they sent a, a van um to Stytown here for election night so that I could have like you know good internet and lighting and all that. And I just had to tell the the person, I said, hey, I said, I just have to let you know, the van driver and like the the camera person, I just have to let you know I'm not a Fox News person. I have to leave with that. I said, I can't even get in this van (laughs) without like giving you all the disclaimers that I'm the progressive voice here and can we be friends? And he's like, oh my God, thanks for saying that. You know, like, all right, everybody's usually so gross that I have on here. So we did that, you know, so I did that disclaimer. And then I was sort of using him as my, like, in the moment coach. I said, so mm. this is what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to do this. I'm trying to do this, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're going through the whole night and have a couple different hits. And they had staged me with um, a white cop from Jersey. Wow. And of course, we're, like, totally, you know, opposition on all the things. But then his last hit, when he got on there, he said... He said, I don't remember her name. He was talking about me, rude. Hmm. But he said, I don't remember her name, but I agree with her. Wow. And I can't even remember if at that point it was policing or guns or money or something. But whatever I was able to do and like raise the consciousness of like the conversation to just like a place of like morality. Yeah. He, he actually said on national news, I agree with her. Wow. We are better than this was the premise. Like my whole theme the whole night was we are better than this. Like nobody sitting around this screen right now can agree that this country is where we want it to be. Like right. we are killing each other because of both race and the pandemic. We are killing yeah. each other. Nobody, so many people are not thriving. You know, there's 38 million children who are poor in this country. And so when you say those things that actually we all can agree on are not moving us to a place of liberation and flourishing, he said, I, I agree with her. And I sit with, I, I just come back to sort of, so anyway, to bring back the bus, the van driver, he looked at me and he said, 
I think you did it. (laughs) (laughs) So I, you know, I, I feel I go back to that story a lot, though. Just it's in a reminder to me that I do think that there are. Well, we have to be able to have conversations across difference. Yeah. Uh, and I really do, you know, hold that sort of community organizing 101, which is you start with the people who are ready. So, like, mm-hmm. if, you know, my aunt wasn't really ready to talk about abortion last year, but she's ready to talk about guns. Mm. And so how do I start there and kind of go, that's that's the that's the entry um, then into what will end up being a fuller conversation about how these things are interconnected. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I, what I, I like the, the notion that w- what we're doing is raising imagination. Yeah. That we're not like, you know, empire wants to subjugate everyone to ideology. And I think that the way of Jesus was to subvert that. And it's one of the things that I lament about modern evangelicalism is mm-hmm. that it, it's, it seems to borrow more from Caesar's playbook than it does from Jesus's. And I love to hear that it's not so much that I'm, that, that even you, I, I don't hear you, I'm not even really trying to sway you about what your opinions are as much as I, I want us to find a way to help those who need help. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not mm-hmm. debating you. I'm not debating you to debate you. You can you can still hold whatever you want to hold as ideologies so long as that ideology does not get in the way of us liberating the folks that need liberation. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that that is that is an important piece there. But yeah, I think too when you lead from a place of like a raising imagination I think it's important especially as a white person to model that I'm not I don't have the, all the answers. Right. I don't have half the answers, <laughs> but but I know some questions that we can ask, mm. and I know some conversations that we should have, and I know some ways that maybe we should stop talking about things and some ways that we should start talking about things. Um, you know, Miriam Kaba, um, I've recently come to know her work, too, an abolitionist organizer, and I feel like her stuff's been all over social media recently, too, but um, she writes... Uh, in her book, we do this till we free us. You know, somebody asked a question of her, like, well, when somebody says to you, how are we going to have um, a world without policing or a world without prisons or whatever the question of the day is, how is it that we can, you know, let women make decisions about their body or whatever it is. And she, she responds with, I don't know, but we'll figure it out together. Yeah. And that's just so simple, but yet so brilliant. And white people especially really need to lean into this notion that we don't have to know. In fact, yeah. we don't know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. what will come if we are brave enough to have the question to, to, to even put the question and the dream out there. Yeah, I love it because it dissolves the, the argument that I hate that people love to make, usually white men. Um, it's, it's not even an argument. It is, but it's, it's that question. Like, well, so what's the solution? It's designed to end the conversation. It's designed to end the resistance. It's for, well, what, what's your answer? Yeah. I love it. 
I don't Which know. is exactly what those 20-year-olds were doing at SCOTUS, right? Yeah, when exactly. they came into my face with a microphone and said, when does life begin? I'm like, bro, that's not the question. Yeah. And that dude, wasn't that, wasn't that what they did with Jesus all the time, trying to pose these questions? You know what I mean? Uh, yep. Who said, you know, like, uh, is it is it lawful to do this? And all these other questions. Who, and Jesus who do you say like, that I am? Yeah, it's like, what, are, what, are, what? he always flipped these questions around and, and to, to cause people to think differently yeah. about the world. And I think, you know, we're practicing that now. So, dude, And the thank Poor you. People's Campaign is, I'm sorry, I'll no, this, then we can do it. The Poor People's Campaign is doing that really brilliantly right now, too. Um, the National Call for Moral Revival, Liz Theo Harris and um, Dr. Barber. Um, Liz is a doctor, too. Dr. Theo Harris and Dr. Barber. But they, you know, we are always asked the question, well, how much does health care for all cost? How much would doing this cost? And, and they're saying, how much does it cost not to yes. provide health care for all? Absolutely. You see what that simple flip does? Yeah. It just, yeah. it just totally reorients the way that we are thinking about it and the way that we're asking it. Because it actually does cost us millions of dollars, not just dollars. It costs us lives. It costs us our morality. It should should not provide health care for all. Those are the costs, too, that we should be putting on the table. Not to mention uh, the cost uh, that we, the the money that we spend to buy toys, military toys for police departments, right, that could be used somewhere else. But, you know, maybe we ain't ready to talk about that. (laughs) Well, Amanda, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come back. I I really, really appreciate uh, you taking this time. Appreciate your work. Uh, grateful for your voice for sure. I've like, man, really like enjoyed and not not enjoyed, beyond enjoyed. Like I, I feel rich for having had this conversation with you today. So thanks for coming back. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for having me. For sure. All right, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you to all of you who are part of the Patreon. If you're not a part of the Patreon, you can join by clicking on the link in uh, the bio, in the bio, but in the uh, show notes of this episode. Also, in the show notes of this episode are ways that you can stay in touch with Amanda. Uh, thank you all for listening, subscribing, telling people about the podcast. Please leave a review and rate it if you haven't already. And um, thanks for helping us for, to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. Thank you.